Thank you, Alexia. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open to Acts chapter 6. We are going to be there predominantly this morning as we uh, allow the Word of God to instruct us, to uh, educate us, to teach us uh, more, not just about who we are, but about uh, the times in which we live. And uh, I don't know about you, but I love believing that uh, God has not abandoned us, amen, and that he has given us a word and he has given us his spirit. And so this morning, we are definitely going to, to need those reminders that God has not abandoned us and that he has given us his word and he has given us his spirit because we are dealing with one of those texts in the Bible um, that speaks very truthfully or honestly uh, about the church and the church's history. And even though it might not seem as, uh, as difficult or as complicated as the previous chapter, you might not know what happened in Acts chapter 5, but uh, it was a little more serious. Uh, there was a young couple that lied to the Holy Spirit and lied to the, to the elders of the church there, um, and their deaths soon ensued. And so there, uh, there are some very honest conversations that Luke records in the book of Acts, which just has to remind us that we are here this morning to deal with the truth. And I don't know how you deal with the truth. I mean, truth is one of those things where um, we, we might think that we want to hear it. We might kind of in, a, in, in a, some theoretical sense believe that we want to hear it. But when the truth becomes known to us, sometimes it can become so painful or so difficult, I, I'd, I'd rather you not tell me. I'd, I'd rather not know. I've, I've always found it both astonishing when people were saying, yeah, I'm really afraid to go to the doctor because I think something is wrong. You're afraid to go to the doctor because you think something is wrong. No, it, it, it's, it's interesting. Wouldn't it be the other way around? Wouldn't it be, I need to go to the doctor because I think something is wrong? Um, I'm, I'm, I, don't know how, I don't know what your policy was, but at times I would ask my children to see their cell phone and I would say, can I see it? Because... I'm the one that paid for it, and I'm the parent in the home. Can I see your cell phone? And then I would just quickly look at their history. And I, I want to know. Well, but what if there was something that was inappropriate on it? No, 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 I, I, I totally get that. But then wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know? And the answer is, if we're all brutally honest, I don't know if I'd want to know. There, there is a comfort, I think, that you and I find in not knowing the truth, not having to deal with the difficulty, not having to deal with the pain. Strange as it might sound, it's, it's easier for us in much of our life to not have to deal with the truth in our relationships, in our society. I'd rather not know. But when it comes to the Bible, actually, it doesn't work that way. One of the things that I find most um, beautiful, um, most uh, authenticating about the Bible is that the writers of the scriptures seem to have no problem or difficulty relating the truth about individuals or collections of individuals, right, communities. It has no problem speaking the truth about who they are, and, and not just the negative side, but the, the fact that life is a series of consecutive good and faithful acts that also has within it a series sometimes of consecutive faithless acts. And such is life. 
The last two weeks as we focus on Pentecost, as we focus on the coming of the church, the birth of the church, I think it is good for us to celebrate that after Peter is done preaching, 3,000 people come to faith. And we applaud that. Isn't that great? The church at its best. And last week, Zane reminded us that, yes, here's another example of the church being the church. And it's this wonderful and healthy and growing group of individuals. And and then all of a sudden, you get Acts chapter 5, and it's like the brakes hit. In Acts chapter 6, we see another series of problems and difficulties And I really am grateful for the fact that the writers of the Bible don't try to hide what I'm just going to refer to this morning as life from us. But it says this is it. I teach a men's Bible study on Tuesdays. We're going through the book of Romans, which loves to speak a lot about how we are saved by faith and how it speaks very, very clearly about how everyone needs to, uh, needs to believe in, in, in Jesus and the hope that we actually have. And in the middle of one of our just discussions near the end of our time last week, one of the people in our group made this comment, and he was, I think, in a sense, like speaking for all of us. He said, I guess, I guess I thought when the Holy Spirit would come and the Holy Spirit would dwell in us, I guess, you could see the pause, right? I guess I thought it would just be, you know, easier. And I know exactly what he's saying. I guess I thought it would be easier too. And sometimes it is, but in many times it's not. And the Bible speaks about that. The Bible speaks very honestly about our human experience, except it always has God over it. It always speaks very honestly and truthfully about the good and and the bad and the middle that we experience. And and then it, it, it also speaks, and I think this is important, it speaks redemptively about how we move forward. So I get this question a lot, and, and I, I, just, I think it's just fair to, I'm just going to say it in front of all of you, I get this question a lot, hey, how is the church doing? How is the church doing? I, I sometimes get it from people who are not part of the Sunnybrook family, and I sometimes get it from people who are part of the Sunnybrook family, and they just want to know, hey, how, how's the church going? How is the church doing? And I, I decided that I would actually treat this question much like I treat that question when they say to you, hey, how are you doing? I want to speak, I know you probably don't have 30 minutes to hear how I'm doing, but I want to speak honestly about this, and so I will often pause, not because I'm afraid to tell you how I'm doing, but I want to be able to give you an answer, I think you're asking genuinely, I want to be able to give an answer that is not just truthful, but that is trying to evaluate things than just the last five minutes of my life. Because sometimes when I get asked that question, how are you doing, and if the last five minutes have been bad, I'm doing terrible. Never mind the fact that I've been doing well for a really long time, the last five minutes have been absolutely terrible, and I'm doing terrible. I think it's good for us to sit back and to look at our lives, or to look at our lives collectively, and to ask the question, hey, how are we doing? And so here's kind of how I've always wanted to talk about it. How is the church doing? On the one hand, I think I could say, man, we're thriving. We're doing really, really well. Now, what's interesting is, is that when I make that statement, I don't know if I'm actually speaking for all of us, but I am actually speaking for some of us. This is a question that's been asked a lot over the last year and a half. Hey, how's the church doing? Um, And I would even say this, not all churches are responding even in the same. And and even when I, I make that statement, 
um, man, the church is thriving, you're going, I don't know if I'm thriving. I, I hear that. I promise I'll get to you in a moment. But I think it is good for us to realize that there really are. There are a lot of moments, uh, Acts 2 moments, Acts 3 moments. We've had a lot of people come to faith in the last number of weeks. We've had a lot of baptisms. It's been really genuinely exciting. I'm hearing people talk about uh, being able to, to be with one another again and to, to have more face-to-face interaction. I'm hearing about parents and families that are connecting at a, at a whole new level and are responding now to faith in a whole new level. And in reality, there are a lot of people within our fellowship that are really doing really well. And I think it's good for us to be aware of that. Hey, how are you doing? And, and if I'm going to be honest, I'm going to say, yeah, kind of getting by. I thought you said you were thriving. Oh, no, some of us are, but honestly, some are just getting by. And now you're going, okay, now you're speaking to me, brother. Now, amen. We never get the amens on the the getting bys, do we? We're thriving. Amen. We're getting by. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's me. Getting by. I don't know, it's, it's not terrible, it's not, it's not good, I'm still trying to figure things out, I'm, I'm, I'm reflective, um, I, I'm not a verbal processor, and so honestly, I can think of a number of difficult things that I've gone through recently, or we've gone through recently, um, and yet the Lord is faithful, and the Lord is good, and I really want to be responsive to that, and so how, how am I doing? I'm, I'm really, I'm getting by, I don't mean that on the, on the negative side, I'm not just trying to, you know, kind of get a, get a C as you're grading me, I'm not just trying to pay part to the meaty part of the curve, um, I'm, I'm just being very, very honest. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that we're, everything is awesome, and I wouldn't say that everything is terrible. You know, it's uh, one of the most interesting part of life is sometimes it is just so daily, right? What is, is that your term? And, and I would even say, and I think it's important for us to realize it, that you do know this book, <laughs> which moves on roughly, from cover to cover, spans about 1,500 years, and therefore, most of life is daily. 1,500 years, cover to cover. Most of life is daily. I know it sounds like or seems like that every other day Abraham is offering his son Isaac on an altar. But most of the time, it's just watching sheep. It's just daily. How's the church doing? Honestly, the church is getting by. I don't mean that positively or negatively. I mean that truthfully. That's where she's at. And then I like to say this when people ask how the church is, church is doing. They can probably see where I'm going, right? Like you get the next one. How's the church doing? It's, we're struggling. We're struggling. Who's struggling? And, and sometimes it's leadership, and sometimes it's because of the circumstances that are happening around us. But no, there's a real struggle that's going on around us. I'm having some conversations with individuals, and, and, and they're struggling, struggling individually with where they believe society is moving corporately. And they're deeply concerned about where we're going. And it really doesn't matter if I go, hey, but, but, but just good news, the majority of people are doing really, really well. You, you know, you, you want to be able to rejoice with them, but it's hard. I mean, news or experiences that you've heard this week. And I'm, I'm really struggling, really struggling with my faith right now. And sometimes that happens individually, and I would even say with certain circumstances, it can even happen to us corporately. And therefore, I, I, think, it's just, I think it's just appropriate for us. 
that as we read the scriptures and as we look at both individuals and communities of faith, that we realize that with the snippet that we look at, right? Like Alexia helped us with seven verses. Seven verses. This is like a, it's literally like a snapshot. And imagine if, if someone took like a snapshot of your week and then tried to say, is this what your week was like? No, that was actually, no, that was just my birthday party. The whole week wasn't that, I promise you. Take another snapshot. Yeah, no, that was just breakfast on Tuesday. Yeah, it was a lot more going on than just breakfast on Tuesday. So we literally get these snapshots, these insights into it. And then what you need, what we, what we actually have, is a photo album, a collection of snapshots that helps us see not just an individual moment of an individual or a community of faith, but a collection of them. And therefore, I want you to see this, that as the church is probably in a constant state of thriving, getting by, and struggling, individually and corporately, that what the Bible makes very, very clear from the beginning to the end is that in the midst of all of this, all of our thriving and all of our getting by and all of our struggles happen under the guidance, under the support, and under the strength of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need to remember. So what we actually see in this text is not a problem to be solved, but we actually see that as the church is choosing and moving and what it looks like for faithfulness for them today, that they're not alone. I think that's important that we understand that and that you even hear that this morning, that we're not alone. That for those of us who are thriving, we're we're not there alone. You didn't get here by yourself. This is not by your own doing. This is not by your own um, ingenuity or your own hard work. But you are here under the constant guidance, support, and strength of the Holy Spirit. And collectively, we're not thriving because we're better than or somehow we get it. But instead, it is because of God's constant guidance, support, and strength. And the same thing when we're getting by. The Holy Spirit is with us, and as we struggle, praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit is with us. And so I want to look at this from our text this morning. And again, I I probably could have taken some of these ideas because Luke, as he records the life of the church, has no problem being honest of what's going on, but he always reveals what's happening behind the curtain, and that's what you and I forget. You and I can quickly forget um, we can be so kind of trapped in the moment or in the circumstances or even in the collection of circumstances that what we fail to recognize or what we fail to appreciate or what we fail to find our deeper strength or hope in is the fact that all of what we see and the circumstances that are happening around us are not the sum equation of reality that is happening, but that God is alive and moving and that his spirit has not abandoned us. So it is under this presence of the Spirit that the Apostle Peter promises in Acts chapter 2 when he says, repent and believe, be baptized, and you will be filled. You will receive the Holy Spirit. And this is the promise that he makes. He says this promise is not just for, uh, for, for, for certain groups of people. It is for all who believe. And this hope that we actually have is based on God's eternal promise to us that he will not abandon us. 
And therefore, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we actually see the church being very capable about being honest with its struggles. And here is what their struggles were. Look at 6, verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there, are the, or there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And Luke records this. Yeah, there's a, there's a problem. There's a difficulty. I've had to do a lot of not only study this past week, but even a lot of uh, repenting in my own mind and in my own heart. Um, I, I probably never studied this text as much as I've studied it this past week. And when I first read that, it just kind of came at me and like, wow, this sounds, this sounds complicated. This sounds difficult, especially in an increased time when somebody is complaining about somebody else, about their people being neglected or not cared for, we live in this highly politicized and controversial time. And when I looked at that, I just kind of read it through my own filter and went, wow, like that just screams of favoritism and it just screams of, and, and then I began to study it and I began to realize, oh, it's a, it, it might be a little more natural than you want to think. First of all, Hellenized Jews, Hellenistic Jews. Helen is uh, kind of the, the, the name of a famous Greek woman, and uh, she actually had, uh, it's kind of in, her, in her lineage, a gentleman by the name of Alexander. And Alexander the Great was someone who wanted to, as he would conquer the world, he definitely wanted to everybody to be Greek like him. And that is known as the, the, the process of Hellenization, to make something Greek, in terms of culture, including language. And so roughly 300 years before the time of Christ, Alexander the Great conquered almost then the entire known uh, civilized world, and he literally made them all Greek, and particularly Greek-speaking. And a number of those Jews who adopted, maybe not Greek culture, but the Greek language, most likely did not live in Palestine at the time. And so they lived far away. They were maybe from the exile, still living far east of Jerusalem in Babylon. They, they lived maybe where, where Paul is from um, in Asia Minor. And so the common language of commerce and business was Greek. And so they were Jewish, but they spoke Greek. And, and then you have Hebraic Jews. Hebraic Jews are those that most likely actually lived in Palestine where the language that was spoken, not just the culture that was lived, was Hebrew, more likely a dialect of Hebrew known as Aramaic. And so they spoke that way. Paul refers to himself as a Hebraic Jew when he describes himself in Philippians chapter 3 when he actually says that I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's a way of saying I spoke Hebrew. That is my first language. And so the controversy here is, is not... One set of people, the Greeks versus the Jews, or a Jew versus a Gentile. No, no, no. Luke's going to describe that struggle and that difficulty in future chapters. That's not what's happening here. But literally we have a, a group of people most likely from away. Have you ever heard that phrase, from away? How, how many of you have heard of, I'm going to try to do something here, I'm stepping out. You know, Zane last week talked about soccer. Why? I have no idea. Um, this might be almost equally as foolish because I would like to give you an illustration from Canada, okay? <laughs> Maybe a little less boring than soccer, but anyway, uh, how many of you have heard of Prince Edward Island? Prince Edward Island, which is uh, a province in the eastern part of Canada. I've never been there, by the way. never been to Prince Edward Island. But Prince Edward Island is an island, obviously, and I've had a number of friends who have, uh, during period of their lives, they have lived on Prince Edward Island. And one of the things that they say about Prince Edward Island, particularly the people from Prince Edward Island, is that they are very kind and they're very nice. And I'm like, well, they're Canadian. 
It's really, we're, we're all born relatively kind, unless you play hockey, and then you've got a whole other gene pool in you. But yeah, no, 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 they're, they're, they're kind, but then they're also, and it might even have something to do with growing up on an island. They, they just know who's always been there and who is, and this is their phrase, who are from away, meaning you're not from here. And they refer to you as that, from away. I had a friend who had lived there for 40 years, 40 years. And when I was talking to him, he just said, it's just, it is always like beyond my understanding, beyond my understanding that I can live there for 40 years, minister there for 40 years, and I'm still referred to as Blaine, who is from away, from away. It's like, what do I got to do to be a part of this? And most likely those Hellenized Jews are just from away. That's why it's interesting the Apostle Paul has no problem being honest about the struggles that the church is going through, and sometimes the problem is sin, Acts chapter 5. And sometimes the problem is just what happens when they grow. Notice how he begins in verse 1. What does he say? In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, what's the cause of the problem here? It looks like, well, we're going to have to deal with what it means to be a larger church. I, I often get this call, hey, I'm trying to invite my friend to church. Sunnybrook might be a little bit too big for them. Do you have any recommendations of a church that is smaller? I totally get it. Yeah, I do actually. There are, there are people, I would even say, like in our midst that just feel somehow lost in, 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 in the multitude. And it looks like that's what really was happening. We don't hear about, like, you know what the problem is? It's doctrinal. No. You know what the problem is? The problem is favoritism. I don't think it's favoritism because what we're actually going to find in just a few verses, we're actually going to find that collectively the group decides to appoint seven Hellenized Jews to take care of this problem. You don't do that if you're trying to overlook someone. Sometimes, and I want us to hear, when we're honest about the church, what we actually find out is the overlooking that happened was not intentional at all. Have you ever been overlooked and you just know it was because they didn't care about you and you knew it? That's kind of what happened when I was beginning to study this text. I thought I knew it. And the more that I looked at it, the more I thought, oh, I didn't. I didn't realize that. Like some of the problems that happen in the church are the same problems that happen in life. Have you ever unintentionally hurt somebody or overlooked somebody? Uh-huh. I've done that. How do you feel when they accuse you of doing and having malicious intent? I hate it. I can't believe, like, I don't understand why. And I would tell you, I strongly believe we could be an incredible salt and light kind of community instead of believing that everyone's overlooking or everyone's intent or everyone's Facebook post was meant to vilify or to offend. Maybe they're not. And just like in this, didn't, didn't mean to. Can you imagine trying to care for, and this is why I think it's very interesting, look at those last two words. Can you imagine having 3,000 new people, and now you have to care for, I don't know if the, I don't know if the number is 3,000, but now you have to take care of the daily distribution of food. Like, um, sometimes what we actually do here to try to get ahead of the curve is that we will actually go to Walmart and we'll buy some Walmart gift cards. So that when someone shows up, we can say, hey, listen, we don't have any food here in the, in the church, but here's a Walmart gift card. 
Imagine what it would be like if, if we had to care for the daily distribution of food. Wow. I love the fact that the church is able to be honest about its struggles. And, and the point of, and, and, and so honest that it pursues, it is trying to find what is at the heart of this. And then in the midst of that, what we actually see in this text is an incredible devotion to make sure that as we care for the daily distribution of food, we cannot lose sight of our mission. So the truth about the church is it is going to, at the same time, deal with what is happening and simultaneously stay focused on mission. Because I think that's what Luke is really trying to get our attention at here. Look at verses 2 through 4. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and they said... It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. By the way, that's not because because that's beneath us. It's like, no, think about it. The apostles, right? They're the ones who were with Jesus. It is the apostles that Jesus said, and the Holy Spirit will come on you and he will remind you of everything that I have said to you. You know, the apostles realized that a specific lot, a specific charge, a a specific opportunity came to them. And they are the ones. And so they said, listen, like, the daily distribution of food is very, very important. Our, Our mission, though, is to preach the gospel and to preach the good news of Jesus Christ so that more will come to faith, that we might care for them and love them and teach them what it means to know Christ and to be obedient to Christ. It says we are going to focus on, it says we want to give this up. I love how he puts this. It would not be right for us to give up the preaching of the word and God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men, and I love the qualifications for this because what we would do is we would say, you know, we need somebody, if you guys know disc analysis, we need somebody with a strong C, somebody who's organized, which by the way, I think is great too. I'm really, really grateful for organized people. But, but sometimes we fail to recognize that what's needed in the church are not just our gifts, but our character. And I would even say, essentially, our gifts are great. Our character is essential. How do we care for this? This shows you the degree of the problem that existed. Because the answer to this was... Find seven, select seven men among you of good reputations, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint for this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what's interesting is is that word ministry is the word diakone in the Greek, where we get the word deacon. Um, It is the idea of a service. And what, the, what Acts is teaching here, what Luke is describing, is there are two ministries that need to happen simultaneously. And one of them is the daily distribution of food, the caring for widows. And the other one is the preaching of the word and prayer. And these two ministries need to happen together. What I, I love about the church is that we are not willing to give up on any one of these things, but we recognize we need to find a way to constantly preach and teach the word, to constantly be praying for and caring for one another, to constantly meet the needs beginning with our, in, with our own members and then making sure that that spills over into our community. And we can't pick and choose our mission. 
So the disciples who became the apostles basically said, no, because of what the Holy Spirit has enabled, we are going to be honest about the problem. And, 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 and I love this. I, I learned this principle a number of years ago. Throw people at problems. Throw good people. And I, and I don't mean throw, by the way. I don't mean it like that, by the way. But I just mean like uh, have, have good people uh, deal with the problems because ordinarily we just try to think about solving a problem and we think about principles, and, and principles are helpful, but in the end, it's, it's the people. I was reminded a number of years while I was getting my training, our dean would always say to us, please, never allow your education to exceed your character. Because he realized that what's needed is not just skilled individuals, but godly ones. And in this way, the church is able to stay focused on its mission. And so we see Luke's answer to these problems, or Luke's describing of the answer to these problems, is even discerned because the apostles are so devoted to the Word of God and preaching the Word of God. And they're so devoted to prayer that I believe they are finding themselves in this moment in the direct stream, the direct presence of and awareness of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And that is why as the church moves forward, and this is what I really hope that we grow in very much as a church a confidence in God's ongoing, both individually and collectively, his care for us. If there's one thing that describes the church, um, it, is, it, is, uh, it, is, it is cared for and it is loved by God. I hear a lot, I have actually for my entire life, I don't know if it's better or worse, I know a lot of people that have given up on the church. Do you know someone who's given up on the church? Yeah, I know a lot of people that have given up on the church. God never has. God never will. That says something to me, by the way. It says something to me that the Lord will never give up on his people. They will never give up on his own. I love to ask people that are going through difficulties and they're dealing with their family and they're dealing with their kids and then the, they say this about their kids, but the one thing, the one thing that I'll never do with my kid is what? What will you never do with your kid? Give up on him. Yeah, that's how God feels about the church. And he never gives up on them. Whether it's a matter of sin, whether it's a matter of just they're just getting by, whether they're doing great, the Lord never abandons his own. It's that final little tag along that we have in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, here's what you got to go do. And then at the very end he says, and I will be with you to the end. Look at how Luke describes this as it closes. This proposal, that's how you know, like there's not a lot of, there's, there's less tension in this text than I thought there was. Sure, there's a problem, but there's less tension. Not only do they, do they select seven Hellenized Jews to answer this problem, they are absolutely overjoyed with this. This proposal pleased the whole company. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of, the, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch, and they stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. They ordained them for this ministry. And then Luke gives this summarizing statement. And so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. 
And all of that is not because of a really neat management style. It wasn't because, wow, that's what good leadership does. Well, if you're talking about God, then the answer is yes. This is not about a series of principles. As much as it is just recognizing that the church is much like your family. Sometimes it's doing great, and sometimes it's just getting by, and sometimes it struggles. The church is a lot like your family. That we have difficulties and struggles and every family, most every family has a black sheep and the church has those two and we don't give up on them. The church is very much like, well I keep saying that, let me change it, no, no, no. The church is your family. And therefore may we not be guilty of what I think happens in that verse one where there is an overlooking of people. I, I just couldn't help but think, and, and, and I want us to just kind of close with this idea. I think there, was a, there, ha, there have been a lot of overlooking that has happened um, over the last year. Um, that as you and I began to try to make sure that we care for our own, which is not necessarily a bad thing, I always remind people, um, yeah, my wife knows exactly how many places to set at our table. It's not like she's mad and doesn't want anybody else in the neighborhood to not stop by, but she usually kind of knows, yeah, we set the table for this many. A lot of our overlooking is not intentional. A lot of our overlooking is like, I, I did not know there was a need. As we move forward, it might not be a bad idea to just take a look around at this room and to realize that we're not the only ones in the room. Like, what a good opportunity for us to realize, like, wow, there. There are other believers who are in different situations and circumstances, and how can I honor God and honor them by reaching out and caring for them? How can I recognize that the mission of preaching the word and praying for people has to function all alongside caring for those who are around me? I would just say this. When we do, when the truth begins to sink in that we are not on our own and we are not left alone, then we can really be the church. And may we do so faithfully. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word, for the truth spoken therein, and we pray, Father, for continued growth and strength. We ask you, Father, to lead, guide, and direct us. We ask you to see beyond ourselves. We ask you to remind us of your presence and your purpose. Father, may we truly love the church as family. May we speak of her as we speak of our own. May we do so in a way, Father, that never avoids difficult truth, but always sees that truth in light of your redemptive plan and purpose. So God, I thank you, not just for Jesus, but for the body that he died for. And what a privilege and pleasure it is to worship together today. And all God's people said, amen. So I can't think of a better way to celebrate a church going, you know, we really need to make sure that everybody gets a meal. You know, one of the ways in which the church was able to actually do this was this meal was originally more likely a, a communal type meal that we had with a number of people. And what a great way to make sure everybody gets fed by having them over and feeding them. There's a good thought. But, but here we are with a, with a shared meal that is obviously much smaller, but it is 
tremendous in its significance. It brings us together in mission. It brings us together in the truth. It brings us together, whether we're thriving or getting by or struggling, it brings us together. For in this meal we share in the body of Christ. Let us take his body and eat. The cup, his blood, and drink. And now let us stand and respond in worship.